my guests for the day met each other in high school in Appleton, Wisconsin, from a common love of folk music. They moved to Canada to escape the draft of the Vietnam War, but were soon brought home. They watched their audience grow to become a nationwide known folk duo and a Madison musical institution. This is the Madisonian Podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Brown. I'm Peter Berryman, and I, uh, I'm a semi-retired songwriter musician. I'm 73 years old. Hi, I'm, I'm Lou Berryman, and I'm 73 as well. I was uh, born in, on April 7th, 1947 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, my older, I have an older brother, and eventually I, I have two, two younger sisters. Uh, my parents, my dad was, my, my dad was uh, in work for my mother's father's paper company for a little while when he got out of the, you know, that was only two years after World War II ended. So uh, he got, he was in the Navy and he got out and he got a job with her. Uh, her father's had a small paper company and he was pretty much in the paper industry and the related plastics industry for his whole life as a result of that. Although he did have a business degree from University of Pennsylvania. My mom went to Swarthmore and uh, she always wanted to be a writer, and she got eventually uh, was a was a, cop, a copywriter for radio and department stores and so on. Anyway, we lived in Philadelphia for a couple of years, and I don't remember that because we moved out when I was quite young. We moved to Bennington, Vermont, where my dad had been transferred to another paper company. I remember that vaguely. Uh, we lived on the side of a of a small mountain. It was just beautiful. Bennington, uh, Vermont is beautiful. And um, from there, we, we were there a couple of years and then we moved for six months to Brookfield, Massachusetts because of my dad's job. And then we moved to us in 19, must have been 1952. Uh, I, I, was, I hadn't started school yet. We moved to Homer, Louisiana, which is, um, uh, it's about 50 miles east of Shreveport. It's in Northern Louisiana, tiny little town. In those days, it was totally segregated. There were 2,500 black and 2,500 white, white school and a black school and so forth. So those were odd times. Um, I lived there until, we lived there until 57 when uh, I was uh, nine or 10. And that, at that point we moved to, and my folks, uh, my dad, they, he was in middle management in the paper company, company, and he kept getting fired, and nobody exactly knows why. He was a real nice guy, and some people say that he got fired because he couldn't fire anybody, so they'd always have to let him go. But anyway, he got a job at a paper company in nearby Kokona, uh, uh, Wisconsin, and we, we lived right in the village next door called Appleton, uh, and I spent... 10 years there. So I spent 57 to 67 pretty much, or, or 57 to 66. And, and was it segregated there as, as much as it was it, in, in Vermont or where? It was, uh, Appleton was completely white. As a matter of fact, I didn't, we didn't find out until later, but they were what were called sundowner laws, which means if you were not white, you couldn't be in town after the sun went down. I think this was an ordinance. And this was true in a lot of Midwestern towns. 
and apparently it was true in Appleton until 1967. Uh, we didn't know that when we lived there, but uh, uh, it was it was not it was not segregated because it was totally white. It was very another very strange situation. Um, it's also an odd place because it's Appleton is the home of it's very conservative. It's the home of uh, Joe McCarthy and uh, um, the John Birch Society, which is probably the most right wing society in the world. And we were we were lucky to have Lawrence, what what was then called Lawrence College, was right in the middle of town, and we used to uh, uh, they used to have foreign films, and they brought in Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and the Birds and all these people that otherwise wouldn't have been in that that little conservative town. So it was a it was an odd polarized mixture. Uh, it was a very very you know everywhere is strange in its own way, but. Uh, and I just wanted to, to touch on how my, my one other aspect of my family is that my my dad was a, a plectrum banjo player. He was a he was a good a very good banjo player. And my mom, played who just died last year, was a great stride piano player. She could read music, but she could also really improvise well. So we we grew up with a lot of music in the house. She also in Appleton. She worked at a radio station. It was a middle of the road radio station, and they didn't play anything weird. So she'd all she'd get all these records that record companies would send her that were the weird records, and she <laughs> she'd bring those home. And that's how I got interested, I think, in in writing weird music. <laughs> and and how did that affect you? I mean, when music came into your life, and and all those that what you call weird music, uh, what. what was that a turning point for you or did when did you realize that that was something that you wanted to do well it was it was very i think it was very much a turning point in that uh we we had a little we actually started a little band in high school when i was and and lou was in it in in uh 1964 probably when we were seniors in high school and a certain amount of the music we did was uh Ironically, was was oh, and I and I at that point I had just gotten a twelve-string guitar. I started out on a baritone uke. I moved to twelve-string guitar, and the reason I went to twelve-string guitar was because of Lead Belly. He was a he was a great uh, he was a great folk singer and guitarist, and he was a a black man from. As it turns out, he he grew up fifty miles from where I used to live in Louisiana, and of course I never met the guy, but I mean. He, he was great on the 12 string and that's why I got a 12 string. And so we started to, to listen to a lot of um, a lot of folk music. Uh, Dylan came out around then and and uh, a lot of uh, black folk uh, black blues, Bessie Smith and Billy Holiday and uh, well, you know Chuck Berry and, and Lightning Hopkins and all those folks. Um, and so and we 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 gradually got interested in in jug band music, which is a uh, we listened to the Memphis Jug Band and the Queskin Jug Band, and we actually formed a sort of a jug band when we got out of high school, and that's I'm I'm sort of overlapping with with when Lou and I started making music together because we were in we were together in that high school band and also in the the jug band that we had, but but it made a it made a uh, it made a huge difference uh, in my life, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that this is a good point where we can move to Luke and have her talk about her childhood into the point where you guys were in a band together in high school. So, yeah. Okay. I'm Lou Berryman, and I was born in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1947 and uh, always loved music. From the, t from the time I was really little, I was, I was singing and I learned to play the piano, but n never very well because I wasn't disciplined enough to, to learn how to play most everybody else's music. I really learned how to play and learn to love my own music by playing the piano in the basement when I was a, a young girl. And uh, I read through all my mother's piano music, and they were uh, songs of the 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, show tunes, and uh, what, what they now call the Great American Songbook. And still, to this day, really, really love that music. And I would say, more than any, equal to my influences from folk music is my influence from the American Great American Songbook. So all of those, all of those, uh, all of those songs really influenced me. But my parents lived on the other side of the river from Peter's parents. So they both, Peter's parents both went to college and my, but my parents both graduated from high school and my dad worked in a paper mill. My mother was a homemaker though. She really was, had, had aspirations of being a nurse and she had kind of settled for being a mom the way a lot of women did in those days and that was a huge influence on me too because it i felt because it i mean it pretty much settled me to be a feminist from that point on that seeing how how unhappy my mother was by not pursuing her dream and and be, it's kind of reluctantly becoming a mom. She was not a bad mom, but she wasn't, it wasn't her main bag. Right, and, right. <laughs> so, but I had a pretty happy childhood that notwithstanding and, and I uh, learned, I, I, I love how Peter slips into saying we about, about his influences in music and all the music that he listened to we listened to because we became friends when we were 16 years old and which is probably about how old you are right now <laughs> i'm 14 but yeah you're 14 close, wow yeah. so he uh so we but we became instant friends in art class and found found a, a love of music that we both that we shared and uh, I was learning to play the banjo. I I also was a was a was a Girl Scout, and for the most part, I was a Girl Scout because because of the singing. I liked everything else, but I mostly liked the friendships and and the songs that we sang. And so that really set me in my path for being a a folk singer and a song leader, being a Girl Scout. Right. So, so I guess I'm kind of up to where Peter and I met and started playing music together because then we met when we were sophomores in junior year. Um, I believe, I think I had started 
playing the banjo this summer before my junior year. And so um, friends of ours said, you know, you and Peter should really play music together because you both love folk music so much. And then we, uh, and we, Peter had a, a guy friend named Paul and the three of us started hanging out together and, and uh, going to music concerts together. And then we formed this little folk music band, which really was more of a jug band than anything, I think. Right. So at, at this point, Peter, you can pitch in whenever you want. And uh, okay. um, so what, what did, where did you perform in this band? And, and what was that like having those people who had that common interest with you? Did you guys hit it off right away? And how well, did we, that go? We Yeah, we had, uh, I think our, our, you know, really our, our rule was that we had to be friends first <laughs> and musicians second. And that's still our rule. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, we we eventually we we had one band in high school and then we we graduated from high school we went to a what they then called the Fox Valley Extension which was right outside of Appleton it was part of the University of Wisconsin we went there for a year and at that time we had a a four piece jug band uh, and that was really more uh, I mean that actually we actually had a jug in it I played the jug and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so but but we hadn't started uh, well in high school I. Uh, I had started writing songs, but we didn't, I don't think we performed any of them in these bands. We mostly did. I don't did, think so. No, we mostly did traditional blues and, and you know, whatever we wanted to, uh, but we didn't. So then anyway, so then we. But, but to answer your question, when you, when we say we formed a band does not mean that we started playing for people right away. We formed a band and started playing music together. Right. And that's basically what we did was um, Peter's parents were uh, were very welcoming to the, all the teenagers that their, that their children were friends with. So we hung out at, in his basement and played music until all hours and were completely left to our own devices for the most part. Yeah, we did play out a little bit, you know, for a, for a, we played in a talent show. We played in a, I remember playing in a, I don't even know what it was, but we were, this was just Lou and I were just playing as a duo in a parking lot somewhere for some little festival. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, we, so we played in various combinations. Uh, we played in, as I say, little, little coffee houses sometimes, but we, we really didn't play out much. Right, and, and that was just the beginning of coffee houses, really. I think yeah. the very there wasn't a coffee house per se until we were in college, and then the the coffee house people were so, were a little square for us. I think we didn't really seek those that that milieu out. We much preferred. By then we uh we were eighteen and we could go into bars, so we could play in bars. So. That was yeah, the, really what we aspired to was playing in a bar. <laughs> the, 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 coffee the, houses, the coffee houses then were, were often uh, affiliated with churches. Ah, and, yes. Right. And we weren't real churchy people, and they tended to be fairly churchy coffee. You know, you'd go into play, and there'd be this big cross with Jesus on it right behind you. And it was a little, <laughs> all of a sudden, you were a trio, you know. So, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyway, anyway. Uh, but we had we had great times and and learned 
sort of learned how to play music with somebody else, you know, because, and then we, we moved and then we went, uh, the next year we both ended up in Madison going to school. And incidentally, Lou pointed out we both met in art class. Throughout our lives, we've also done, both of us have done other arts, art forms. Uh, uh, I was an illustrator for a while. Lou, Lou is a great fabric artist and so forth. So that was another interest. And one more thing, both it was similar to both of our parents. They were both very much do-it-yourself kind of people. Okay. Lou's father, Lou's father built their house. My father built our garage. You know, and they. My mom used to. She was always doing, uh, building all something. kinds of projects. Yeah, all kinds of projects. So my parents were musical as well. Yeah. yeah, that too, but that carried us over into into just later years when we had our when we were trying to make a living at this. We really. Uh, I heard you interview uh, somebody who was into who got into punk music, talking about do it yourself, uh, the do it yourself business, and uh, we were really into that. We did our own photography, our own booking, our own our own gra art. graphics and 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 engineering and just everything, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so that really, if if there was any piece of advice I'd give to a band just starting out, it's keep the overhead down you know don't don't hire anybody to do anything but anyway so we went to canada so we went to uh madison and i i continued with i was gonna i was sort of half-heartedly aiming toward a degree in art and lou was in in music so was that what drew you to madison to get the School. degrees or okay mm -hmm. yeah yeah well not 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 so much to get the degrees as to be be in Madison by then it was it was every bit it was even a cooler place than it is now I think you know it and, was definitely Mecca <laughs> yeah and was it as progressive as it is now or how, how was it different it was very it was very uh it was very it, it became pretty violent there started to be riots in the uh in the late 60s uh when they when they tried to when, uh, by 67 yeah. yeah uh we and we we didn't we got involved in a lot of the conversations that were going on vietnam was going on really really hot and heavy then and uh uh there was starting to be quite a, a movement against it the, the first big riots in madison were about that they were trying to recruit people to work for dow chemical which made which Napalm. made napalm which was a an a uh a chemical that they used in vietnam to to defoliate the trees so they could find the enemy and it was all just crazy and so we uh decided it was a very crazy couple of two years there and lou, lou and i decided to get married and go to canada so we went to canada uh i absolutely couldn't take the idea of trying to kill somebody it just didn't I'd, I'd rather you know it just didn't work in my brain so right because you didn't you, you moved to canada so you wouldn't be drafted wouldn't be drafted or... exactly yeah so we were in london ontario for a year and a half and we had a little blues band there i played the drums and lou sang every wednesday night at a bar uh and then not incidentally the guitar player was the same guy that we had our band in with that our junior year in high school, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So he joined us 
as a, a fellow draft resistor and also and our friend, of course, by then. So he came to London. And then when we, we lived in London for a year and a half, as Peter said, and then we moved to the West Coast to, to Vancouver, which was as close to California as we could get living in Canada. And that was where it was really happening. I and should um, add that Lou was also interested in Renaissance music at that time. Oh, yeah, throughout. Uh, she had, Throughout she had, my life, yeah. Throughout her life, and she in in London, Ontario, she actually built a harpsichord from a kit, and <laughs> uh, and we hauled that with us to Vancouver, took it out on the train, and we took brought it back to Madison, and so that was quite something to haul around. Yeah, nice. So I may be backtracking a little bit with this question here, that's but okay, we're jumping right. around. No, no, <laughs> it's okay. But has I, has your political views always been like a big part of your music or a big part of your life in general? Or when did when did your views on politics really uh, come into your music? And They were always part of it. I mean, because, I mean, uh, I'll just answer that first because Peter is the word writer. So he's the guy that specifically says what we believe through our music and he, he neither one of us is a strong vocal ardent activist we both are quiet activists who believe in peace and love and all the stuff we started believing in in 1965 i think you know um but but we never particularly Part of the reason why we went to Canada was we also didn't believe in violence and and uh, making a, other people do what we want them to do by violent forms. So I think that anyone who listens to our music can tell what our political views are in a general sense because we're obviously progressive and former hippies or whatever they want to call us. and, and um, but, and we have become, in Madison, we've become associated with, polit with the political side of things uh, because of, people have picked up those, a few of the songs that, we've, that we have been more pointedly political. Uh, it's, it's funny, one of the things that we, a couple, one of the things that we use in our songwriting, in, when I write lyrics, very often is, is humor, but we use it in a, We'll use it in sort of like our conversation that we're having right now. It's a serious song, but there are sprinkles of humor, and then it gets funny, and then there are sprinkles of serious stuff. So, uh, and, this, and uh, that being said, also the the political songs that, that I, I'm usually interested in this side of politics, and that is what kind of effect they're having on the individual person walking down the street, how that's disrupting their lives and their thoughts, and and driving them crazy, and at, at the same time, I should add that I've always had a, I've always had a real struggle with my uh, with uh, panic attacks and anxiety attacks myself, and I've been very interested subsequently in mental health. So I feel I feel like that all sort of ties together, and usually not always, but usually that when we get into politics in in songwriting. It is about, it's sort of about, it's it's about trying to put forth the idea that we're, 
that this stuff is affecting us all, all deeply, that nobody is alone in these, in these feelings of desperation and, and that they're going crazy and so forth. And that humor is, a, is one way of dealing with it and music is another way of dealing with it. So it's all a mishmash, but politics has always been a thread. I would say politics with a small p. I mean, we don't say, mm -hmm. you know, vote for Jones, you know, vote for Smith. We, we usually try to stay sort of general with it and, and mm -hmm. personal. Very so, personal but, and, and with, with a mind to our own personal ethics, I think. And, we, and um, but among those ethics are an unwillingness to tell other people what to think. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't you think that's true, Peter? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. I do. I mean, uh, you know, there's a danger of preaching to the choir too much in our in our business, and uh, uh, which is which is partly why we don't like to get too specific too. Too, although we do sometimes, but usually. You're, if you don't get specific, your choir is bigger. <laughs> you know the people, the people that understand that the that the song applies to uh, might be it. It might be enjoyed and appreciated by 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 more people. Yeah. Right. So we don't want to. We try not to make the, the us against them thing even even worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well. Um, I, where did we leave off in your, in your journey there? Well, I think we, then we, we came, were, we, we oh, were yeah, we decided we, then we moved to Vancouver where we didn't really, we didn't, our, our musical practices were more loosely organized. We got we more were, into art. Yeah, much more into art. And though Peter still played his guitar, I no longer had a banjo, but I, I sang, we worked out songs together. I also, during all of that time, I was I was doing a certain amount of classical music and singing and, and uh, in, in London, Ontario, I did, uh, I did early music, but not in Vancouver, but I, but I sang in a, in an organization called the Bach Choir, which was a performing organization. So, it was more, uh, more personal journey stuff, I guess, by then. But we our, still, our, yeah. Our, I was just going to say that our employment situation in Canada, we we had, <laughs> uh, we had a million crazy jobs. You know, like uh, I was a psychiatric nursing assistant in London, Ontario, for a while. Lou was a, 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 a library, a library yeah. in the music library and on campus. Right. And then in Vancouver, I worked in a in an artificial artificial flower company wholesaling. And I worked <laughs> and I worked in a, in a harpsichord factory. I went. Yeah. There, I found out there was a, a a factory actually building harpsichords. And based on the fact that I had built a harpsichord, I went down and they I talked them into hiring me for some reason. And they were they. It was a pity gesture, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were there. It was a wonderful experience. So we'd really, you know, from waitressing to general labor to everything. Construction and, and mm -hmm. yeah, uh, just just everything. Uh, everything. Just a million little but, jobs. But, you know, you, you, you have to realize that we weren't 
not neither of us had finished school or even gotten anywhere near finishing school and so we didn't actually have a profession that we could have used to get money so we we were thus thus we had to be much more creative in the way we got money and be more willing to take any job there was but and we didn't the whole t we cut corner with the whole time we were in canada we never had a car for example mm -hmm. you know we right. were very we just lived in the cheapest possible place we could get and yeah. you know just we were just getting by and and that was all we wanted to do you know and it was i remember once <laughs> some of the people from the chorus that i was singing with would were just dropping me off i had gotten a ride home after the choir rehearsal and they and I said, okay, this is where I lived. You can drop me right here. And it was, you know, on my street corner. We lived upstairs above a pizza place. And uh, and they didn't want to let me out of the car because it was such a crappy neighborhood. <laughs> 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 they were, you know, they weren't like, they weren't just getting by. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but then we moved, we moved back to... Uh... And we had been married in, I don't know if we mentioned, we had gotten married in 67. Yeah, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And we moved back to Madison in 1973. There was a sort of, it's a complicated, but there was sort of an un, I, we don't know what happened. We were all yeah, of a sudden unpublicized not, no, and kind of illegal move by the, by the Nixon administration to bring the draft evaders home in order to get our parents' votes is what we always thought. But for whatever reason, Peter was out having been actually sought by the FBI. By the FBI. <laughs> Peter was a fugitive, but he went from being a fugitive to totally all everyone thing is forgiven and and uh, let that be a lesson to you. Government is not forever or or it <laughs> <laughs> let's hope. They, but, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, so we got back to Madison about 1973, and we we really we we started getting really interested in in music, and we we're still very interested in art. And Lou decided to go back to school, as a matter of fact, in in art history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't, but I but anyway, we started making music, and we got hooked up with uh, the local folk musicians, and uh, realized that the music that we played fit in with the folk music scene of the day better than it fit in with any other scene scene. I mean, we tried, we tried playing all kinds of various, you know, things, bars and conventions and this and that and the other thing. But, um, but really you're getting ahead of yourself, Peter, because yeah. we, we, we didn't know what we were doing. We were, Peter no. was writing songs and we were doing few of the songs that we have sung all our lives. And we got a job playing in a tavern called the the Club de Wash in the old Washington Hotel downtown, burned down a long time ago. This and, was uh, 1977. Yeah, same year I finally got my degree. As a matter of fact, <laughs> and, and uh, so we started playing our music that was completely original. Was something that we made up, and we were up built out of a kind of a folk music floor with a lot of the musical musical elements from my musical tastes and abilities 
built in. And Peter, of course, had knew a lot of those, a lot of the songs that I was listening to because that's what his mom and dad played. Yeah. So you had a huge influence from American music, American popular music at, of the time as well. Another yeah. thing that, yeah. Another thing that happened during our lives, I should mention that we kind of drifted apart as a couple and we, we started, we were really going crazy. I was doing a lot of drinking. We were partying a lot. We met, we sort of missed our, we felt like we missed our youth a little bit, I think, yeah, you know, we in, did. in Canada. And so we just let, let loose when we got back and, um, we ended up, uh, we ended up eventually <laughs> and I went getting, to school. <laughs> yeah, we ended up eventually getting a divorce and, and, and so on, but we were always playing music together. We still were, had that attachment and we were always friends. It just, the marriage had sort of run its course. And so, uh, and I, uh, we've both been married for many, many years to other, other folks, uh, now, but anyway, um, so, so we started, we, we were by then pretty much making our livings playing music. And that was the late seventies. And that was the, that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to make our living doing some kind of art, either making actual visual art or playing music. And so we were very happy. I mean, we were partying and we were irresponsible about it, I suppose, but we were playing it, playing out all the time and making it, making a little bit of a living, but but if you look back at our history, we never required very much money. So we made, so being musicians was perfect for us because we'd been in training for that kind of poverty our whole lives. <laughs> so we ended up playing uh, at this this club de wash uh, two two nights a week for for almost like nine years. So we we really learned how to play and sing together, and we were kind of forced to keep writing new songs to keep the audience interested. Mm -hmm. So that was all good training for us in the uh, early 80s. And okay. during that time, we were also doing other gigs, whatever we could find to right. supplement our income. So so we were developing a little bit of a name for ourselves in the Midwest. Right. And, and by, we were, by 1981 or so. Yeah. And we had gotten a little bit involved with an a national folk music organization that was just forming at the time and so forth. Then in 1981 or 82, we opened for a guy named Michael Cooney in a place that used to be uh, on the corner of Regent and Park Street. It was called Bunkies. It's a church now, yeah. Yeah, I think so. It was called Bunkies, and it was, uh, and we opened, we happened to open for uh, a guy named Michael Cooney, who was a, a nationally known, internationally known folk singer. He really liked our stuff. He learned some of it, and we'd never met him before, but or he, heard of him either. <laughs> or heard of him, but he um, so he really helped us out. He introduced us to all these coffee houses around the country, and wrote letters of recommendation, and played our music all over the country. So he opened the door for us all for for touring, and we started touring. Then, uh, you know, this is this is way before the internet. This is before. Yeah. He basically when, taught me how to do. A, how to become a booking agent as well. Gave me all the phone numbers and contact information, people to call and and uh, how much money to ask for even. He was absolutely wonderful to us. Yeah. And that was by 1985, 
So Michael was encouraging us to do a national tour with, with all these recommendations. So in, 19, in the fall of 1985, we took our very first two-week tour out east. Scared to death. We were just driving and going out to these places where Michael had been playing our music for a couple, several years already. So these, the people we were playing for already knew a lot of our, of our best songs. So we were welcomed and it, it was just couldn't have been a better experience. We were also, uh, because, through Michael and through our own efforts, we were being played on folk music radio stations around the country. And boy, does that, did that help in those days. If you got radio coverage, uh, you could tell when you came into a, a place you'd never been before, if it was a, a good packed audience, that there was probably a radio program behind it. And we got to be very good friends, excellent close friends with a lot of folk DJs mm -hmm. we're still friends with uh, around the country. A lot of those shows, unfortunately, have been taken off the air, uh, but we're still friends with a lot. There's still a certain amount of them yeah, that are still going on. Yeah, some of them have, have managed to, to live through that, but, but uh, we can't stress enough how different the world was before the internet, that all of my, all of our connections were made by phone and old-fashioned mail to uh, get to know all these people and to set up the tours we had to get people on the phone and uh, it was it, compared to today it was a lot of a lot of work but but also there were fewer people doing it so it wasn't it never wasn't insurmountable you couldn't begin to set up a tour just by calling people on their phones. For one thing, you couldn't find their phone numbers because everybody, nobody's listed, you know, <laughs> so. It, it was funny in those days. I mean, we'd have to go down to the library and, and where they had yellow pages from all over the country and to find motels to stay in. We'd have to look through these yellow pages and carry a map <laughs> with us and figure out where the gig was and where the We were lost was all and, the time. No <laughs> GPS. Oh, God. We thought we'd died and went to heaven when we first got a GPS. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's quite, an, quite an improvement. Um, but we had, a, 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 and over the years, we had quite a few great experiences. We had uh, locally, um, we we uh, got a grant to, to, did we get a grant for John Stevens? I think we did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Lou is a really good grant writer. We got a no, grant. No, Peter is a really good grant writer. Well, we're both pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we got a grant to have John Stevens, who was a world-famous tuba player at, uh, at the UW, to arrange... Head of Wisconsin, the Department of Music. Yeah, head of the department, to arrange our Wisconsin songs, our songs about Wisconsin for a five piece brass band. And we played and recorded that a couple, you know, we played a little bit with, with them just just for the heck of it. It was such a gas. It was really That's fun. Thrilling. We, still, thrilling. we still have that recording for sale. That was in 1988. And then a few years after that, we got another grant to, to have some people, some uh, a local musical, comedy duo a show a show tune duo to write our songs into a into a review that the madison repertory theater presented and it was in their in their uh schedule for a month in in the summer of what mm -hmm. year was that 90 
94 or something? No, 2004. Two, 2004. 2004. Wrong, wrong decade. Yeah, wrong decade. Anyway. And, so, and we, all, we also had grant support for our very first songbook, too. So we were, we, you know, we were getting a, a fair amount. So that's three big grants from uh, Dane County Cultural Affairs and the Wisconsin Arts Board. Both were instrumental in helping us as well as smaller ones from Madison, the city of Madison Arts Commission. But uh, so, I mean, it speaks very, to me, that's what, how important government support of the arts is. Yeah, we also- government money to help you on right. your career was, it was really influential in our lives. We also had occasional private support that was great. We, we played, uh, we, our, our first LP, our first album, we were we got a loan from Rodney Shield, the guy who owned the Club de Washington, the hotel, the Washington Hotel, who was a, just a wonderful guy. He loaned us three thousand dollars interest free to put out a to put out a, an album. Yeah, we, we paid him back quite quickly, but it, but that was so generous of him to do that. Yeah, to do that. absolutely. And so we've we've had all kinds of help over the years and. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so you know that that went on. We we really sort of stopped touring nationally in 1970. Uh, in 19 <laughs> in two what no? <laughs> How old am I? When I turned really when good. I 2017. <laughs> I'm in the wrong millennium. Uh, <laughs> this is what happens when you get old. That's right. This but, is uh, it. This is it. But we, we actually when had I turned been... 70. Well, we had our last tour. We played New York City on my 70th birthday, <laughs> and um, that was pretty much it for touring. But we still were doing a lot of. For 20 years, we play a benefit every New Year's Eve for the Goodman Community Center. We did a lot of, you know, stuff like that. Over yeah, a the lot years. of fundraising, local fundraising. fundraising things for, and that also is partly why we became thought of as political songwriters because yeah, we, were, we would. We would write specific songs. We wrote a song to protest the convention center being built with public money, and that, of course, went nowhere. <laughs> well, we even we even sang it for the Madison County Board. We went down there one morning, and they all loved it, but they voted for the convention center anyway. Yeah, so. we got a standing ovation and left the yeah. room, and then they voted for it. <laughs> oh well. But, we I remember we used to play benefits to raise money to get to help raise money to get work radio started before it was even yeah, on the air. We played right. benefits yeah. for those guys. Uh, a lot of people did. I mean, we weren't alone in that. Yeah, of course. Um, but anyway, so in these last in these last few years, we still have been until the virus, the plague hit. We uh, we still played local gigs, you know, around Wisconsin. And loved and, them. Yeah. yeah, and loved them and. And now we're still writing. We're still writing a lot and putting stuff online and uh, and plan to. We can't stop. We plan to keep at it until we can't yeah, do we it both, anymore. Yeah, we both. We both very much. We miss playing together. We miss playing for people, and uh, obviously we must miss talking about ourselves because we can't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so we're we're figuring out a way of putting out music together separately so we how, is, have, how has that been what is that how has that um, been 
mixed results. I think that there are three of our latest songs are posted on our website right now. They sound great. I I saw them. I saw a few of them already. So, yeah, they sound great. I mean, it seems like it's working but i'm sure it's definitely a process syncing that all <laughs> definitely up it is it's really doing it online it's, yeah it's, it it's an interesting experience because we're doing we're both recording separately of course into our cell phones and peter usually it depends on who's doing lead but if peter sings the lead he makes the first recording and uh, sends it to me via some large file carrier and then I put it on my computer and I have right here set up my uh, my computer on on a on a table and on a milk carton to get to get the picture high enough so that it looks like he's right here next to me <laughs> and uh, so and I sing into my cell phone but the the drawback, the most difficult part is that you're looking, it's like looking in a mirror while you're singing the whole time because, right. and which I hate, you know, because I'm constantly going, oh, my hair, oh, my wrinkles, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but wait, it's so. been very, it's, it has that feeling of being very experimental, so it's fresh in a way. The, the first the first one we did, I wrote a, a, a lyric and then I, I didn't even tell Lou what melody, I, I usually use a working melody to write the lyric and then send her that, send her the lyric and then she writes the final melody and sends it back. But anyway, but this time I just wrote chords. I wrote the lyrics and I put chords on them and I sent that to Lou. And then without telling Lou, I recorded a melody I made up that went with the chords. And she made up a melody that she made up that went with the chords and we hadn't we hadn't heard the others work yet, and so I combined those two in uh, in iMovie, and that's the first time we heard it sung to us singing together, and it was like wow! It was a complete well, the, the, surprise. The problem with that though is that is that when Peter sent me that that this is the very first song when we wrote this way, um, Peter neglected to tell me what time signature to use, yeah. so. <laughs> He wrote it, he wrote a song in a straight four four and I wrote a waltz. So when you put the two of them together, it really it's kind of a mess, you know. So <laughs> that was the second the actual second time we did that when Peter finally let let me know that I was writing in the wrong time signature. Otherwise we were going Then it off, sounded a little better. We were going off into some surrealist genre that nobody <laughs> right, ever right. Right, right. So it's definitely a process to record yeah, remotely. Right. It's definitely it a is. project. And it's, but it's really, yeah, you, it's, um, I think, at a, at a very, very depressing time in our lives and in the world, it is really giving us something to think about besides death and destruction. Well, so. and we both, and always throughout our lives, Art and humor are the two, you know, the two things that we strongly believe in them. I mean, we take our humor very seriously, and, and we're. But uh, I really think uh, art can save lives. I really, I really do, and it's so great to see, to see uh, in uh, in the the protests you see these these days. There's still a great facet of art and music that's uh, mm -hmm. that's taking place, and it's wonderful to see. Right. Right.
Yeah. Well, it w- it was so great to talk to you guys, and um, I guess is there is there anything else you want to say to the listeners and tell the well, listeners? I would definitely like to say that I think what you're doing is great. I think uh, Lou and I have talked about this before. When we when we look out at our audience, or even when you're just walking down the street in a place like Madison, this is true anywhere, but particularly in a place like Madison, you could be walking past the world's foremost authority on pencil sharpeners, you know, <laughs> you, 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 and you'd never know it. You don't know about who everybody is in this town. Yeah, and so you're many doing, know. You're doing, I think you're doing a great service with, with these podcasts, and I hope you keep doing it. So thank, uh, and, thank you. And what I would like to say is, how in the world did you find out about us? Good question. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not hard to find a Madison institution of music. <laughs> the Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by Ben Brown. Cover art, editing, producing, and booking by Ben Brown. Madisonians, please contact me at Benjamin Brownie Productions if you would like to be on the show. Please support us by our merch, teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast. Or go down, press details on this episode, and you'll find yourself in the description of this episode. And go ahead and click that link that's right there in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. See you next Monday.